0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I am here with Mally Mally Locke, and we're sitting in a hotel room in Alexandria. Welcome to my hotel room.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I'm checking out later today, Uh, but first we will have an interview about philanthropy, if that's all right with you, and I would like to just dive right in. We're going to start with your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um,
1: So I was born in Guyana, in South America. Guyana is the only English-speaking country on the continent of South America. Moved to the Bronx when I was uh, just before my sixth birthday. And there I grew up until I was 18, um, then went to college or whatever. So I guess I would say Bronx. When did you move to the Bronx? When I was six.
0: Six years old. So how much do you remember from before?
1: I I actually have memories uh, sort of more almost like movie like memories. Yeah. Um, but I do have memories of growing up in Guyana. Um, I have memories of going to the airport before we left, um, uh, arriving in the US. I you know, Guyana is a developing country. Um, you know, sometimes construction would start on houses in our little, we had a little, we had a house in a cul-de-sac. And, um, one of my favorite memories from growing up is remembering walking onto a construction site with my siblings. Um, You know, this is a long time ago, no safety codes, probably still no safety codes, and uh, a cow walking into the house uh, right alongside me. Um, It was actually terrifying, because I was like maybe three years old. I
0: I remember my first cow. Gigantic. Scary, big, scary critters, yeah. Very scary, and I was... They smell, too.
1: I don't mind the smell, but they were, they were it was uh, alarming, and I was down there by myself because my siblings were brave enough to climb the rickety ladder to go to the second floor of the construction, but I wasn't, and so I was down there by myself with you the You suppose
0: cow. that was his house, the cow?
1: Probably. He, I mean, there we were was, you were know trespassing in his what? home. There was manure a lot, so he'd been that staying there. That cow had done
0: well for himself. Pretty well. I was building him, and, added, and had some people building him a home.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Uh, very good. So then you... The Bronx. Mm-hmm. That's a big place. I was just there on my way down here. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, I drove through it. The... Uh, and I've been there a few times. I have not been to anywhere in South America. But mm-hmm. I imagine that it's different.
1: It is very different. Uh, so, you know, again, I haven't been to Guyana either now in... Oh, you haven't been back? I have not been back. Hmm. We had a house until there, until 2018. Um, hmm. and I th- think we might still have property there. I'm not really sure. Uh, that would be my brother's or mother's domain. Um, but other members of my family have been back. Uh, so I'm the youngest of seven kids, and my elder siblings went to you know middle and high school there, and so they had more entrenched roots and memories. Whereas I left when I was so young that I don't have any like personal uh-huh. relationships outside of my family.
0: Uh, very interesting. Um, when you got to the Bronx, uh, what did you think of it?
1: It was alarming um mm-hmm. you know going again from a developing country, a lot of open space, unpaved roads, knowing everyone um walking everywhere and uh, I arrived on October thirtieth nineteen eighty three um it was a, a, especially cold october um and uh I didn't have a coat because Guyana is a tropical country. So got off the plane and, you know, my mom had gotten coats. So let me back up a little bit. Um, My mom actually left us, the kids, in Guyana when she moved first to the U.S. So she was a nurse and she was able to get residency here very quickly at that Mm. time. Um, But, you know, she couldn't sponsor the rest of us immediately. So my dad stayed in Guyana with... Uh, six kids. She moved here with my eldest sibling who went straight to Boston University. My mom lived in the Bronx, um, got herself established. A couple years later, uh, three more of us moved over. So we came over with my dad. Then he went back, stayed a little while longer, then came over with the rest of the kids and, you know, took care of closing up shop essentially in Guyana. So it was a lot of disruption. And I also hadn't seen my mother in two years Hmm. from the ages of three three after age three to age just before my sixth birthday. Oh. Um, so over two years. And I didn't recognize her at the airport. Um, and uh, that's still one of my mother's, as you can imagine, hardest memories. And now as a parent, um, I cannot fathom uh, the what she had to do um, to, to, to get us here. But anyway, I remember coming off the plane lots of people. It's freezing cold. She put a coat over us, over me, my, my two sisters that were with me. And it was just like everything was big and loud and crowded. Oh. And I remember the very first night, the one of the first things we had were apples because apples are, again, not a tropical fruit. So we'd only read about apples. Didn't know they were real. What did you think? I think I liked it, but I don't really even remember that clearly. And then we had uh, my sister's <laughs> My sister's birthday was October 31st, Halloween, um, and her uh, request for a meal was McDonald's. So we had McDonald's on uh, for the very first time again in our lives at that point, and everything was very new and exciting. But I hated then, and I still hate now cold weather. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, soon thereafter, you know, she had to enroll us in school, and you know, went to school, came back the next morning. She was like, "Okay, we well, yeah, I." going back to school. And I was like, I have to keep going. Um, and obviously acclimated pretty well, but um yeah, it's a very, very jarring experience. Um, we lived close to uh, North in the North Bronx and there was an elevated train line near the apartment that we lived in when we first moved here. Um, again, loud, crowded, yep. no greenery, like just dramatically different from everything. But
0: yeah, I myself just, so I, my- uh, live in maine now in a fairly not like not the cosmopolitan part, and I, as you know i was in d c for a long time and it's been a, a it's very very relaxing and one of the things that's very nice is you get up and you look out and like you know you see a house or two and there's the road mm-hmm. like there's a, there's like i don't know maybe five percent of the vista is man made objects mm-hmm. right and maybe you'll even hear a a man made sound right in New York. Ninety-eight percent of what you see out the window is man-made yeah. object, and it's probably noisy and maybe moving, or there's steam coming off of it, and there's just way too much, yes, unnatural stuff to look for any one person to look at and process. Yeah, <laughs> and
1: what's what's funny and when is when you go th-
0: directly from it, like it was just really I hadn't I'd been to New York many times before, and I like uh, ha- haven't spent the summer recently in the up in Central Maine. It, it was it's uh, it's really something. I think those people who live in New York don't really don't realize how no. overstimulated they are.
1: Exactly. So I moved to DC six years ago. Uh, going, wait, wait, yes, yeah, six years ago, uh, six and a half years ago now, and I lived in the Bronx uh, and Brooklyn and never really wanted to move. Um, ended up moving here because members of my family had moved here, I had my son wanted to be closer to them. Now, when I go to New York, I'm shocked by how, again, too much it is, too loud, and D.C. is a city, um, certainly not the same scale, but Mm -hmm. we have so much more green space and so much more sky because the buildings are all low, and I never realized what a huge difference and impact that that was having on my mood and all of those things until now when I go back. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I lived here and loved living here and never imagined not living here. And now I can't imagine living there again. <laughs>
0: uh, yes, the uh, and and yeah, absolutely the D.C. here is a city. Uh, I mean, even here in the the Northern Virginia, it's all quite urban. But like low, but yeah, lower. It just seems, it's a little bit more tolerable to me. Still too much. <laughs> it's all still too much. I think. Um, you know, once upon a time, we most people lived in rural areas. Yeah. And cities were unique, and we are, particularly Americans, like no one likes to buck the trend, right? You go move to the city and you live in the city,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: right? That's the like cool thing to do, <laughs> and it's not like oh, what's what's best for me or where would be the best environment for me, or it's just I'm the coolest thing to do is go work, you know, move to New York, work in publishing or whatever.
1: Well, I don't, I don't, I I don't know if we even think about whether or not. Well, when I lived there, I certainly was like, oh. Uh, new york i can't imagine living i love you know i loved being a new yorker but i don't think i realized again you don't realize it until you're outside of it and i don't even think it was a certainly wasn't really a choice it was like my family lives there i moved back there after college and then i had to work there but i think now um again gratefully uh a lot of people i know have moved out of cities since the pandemic pushed out initially just by the pandemic itself and not wanting to be in close quarters with other people but also then being like oh wow I like this so much more my my quality of life is better Mm. my happiness is better my kids are happier um I feel like I'm part of a community um so a fair number of my um friends my age have moved out and um I am happy for them and happy for uh, all of us because it has made such a huge difference on quality of life.
0: Uh, absolutely, and um, particularly when it comes to our proposal authors that we review, uh, I have, one of the things I've noticed is that many of them, um, when it comes to their fundraising, and also sometimes when they like where where they physically locate themselves, uh, they're not in their home. They go to a big city because that's where right things happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, people with and there's
0: are. probably people in their hometown that would be extremely excited to support <laughs> their cause, right? And they'd be much more likely to be able to get a meeting with them, and you might even be able to, like, send cold solicitation letters to people in your small hometown, right? And maybe they know you mm-hmm. for your whole life. You try to move, like, I did it once, I came to D.C., nobody knew me. Like, they let me have a job mm-hmm. with very little responsibility for a long period of time, Right? But you don't have that. If you're trying to start, like, you really want to get into the nonprofit world and work on issues, it's good to be part of a community mm-hmm. where people know who you are and feel like you have value and are willing to talk to you and then and remember you afterwards. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, even, like, on List is not focused on Maine, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I get a disproportionate amount of support from people from my, even when I was down here, right? Because those folks, I matter to people there. Yeah. Uh, and even people in DC who like, like me and like what it all is and understand it intellectually, right? Like, like not f- fundamentally not from here
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and plenty of folks that are right. And a lot of, and uh, increasingly philanthropists are right. Well,
1: it's also- focused
0: on like, and, and looking for, for, I see it in the RFPs that we review. They want the leaders of the organization to be members of the community where the work is being done. hmm. But we do have a lot of folks who are like, well, if I want to start a nonprofit, it's going to have to be New York or the city or whatever, and they might be better served, right? Totally. Um, you don't necessarily need to. Um, I mean, when I graduated from college, I don't think I considered anything other than like one of the big cities. Mm-hmm. That's where jobs were. That's what. That's what you did. Uh, I've been trying to because I think about that lately. Like, did I did I ever spend any time thinking about?
1: I don't think anyone Stayed, did, didn't.
0: Though. At no point did it occur to me. I don't think it had just been assumed that I would leave the whole time.
1: But but I but I think that that's a pretty normal thing. Like we within certain colleges and universities that you know the the churn and the sort of current is, is you know actually it's funny. I was thinking about this myself recently and and thinking about um, grind culture and uh, oh, yes. work in general. And the fact that I uh, have very deliberately stepped away from that, Um, you know, I have a a, a great job. um, But I only work part time. And I am very clear that I don't want to work doesn't dominate my life the way that it used to pre pandemic. And um, that was one positive outcome. But grind is something that I feel like I was swept into because again, of the, the, the social settings and the culture that I was in, you know, you go to the school and, you know, people go on to become bankers and, you know, consultants and lawyers and doctors. And like it, it, I didn't spend a lot of time investigating what the alternatives were, including where I would live or that I could do something completely different and, you know, whatever. Um, there was a lot of defaulting to the norm and uh, I'm grateful with that with age and much more experience you're like I don't I don't need to do that and I hope that um, I spend some time uh, you know talking with younger people and encouraging them not to do that like just uh, don't do that if you don't want actually want to spend more time investigating what you actually want to do or what you actually care about um, because it's very easy to just default to what everyone else is sort of is doing or feeling like they should do. Uh,
0: so, um, one of the, one of the things that has happened to our particular, like our smaller communities that might have contributed to, right. The, the brain drain, the brain drain that occurs that has occurred for the last, uh, probably like 75 years in America, mm-hmm. you've had the brightest rural students all trying to go to the cities. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that was not always the case here. And one of the things that changed is, is church attendance. Uh, Right, you got really involved in your church in your hometown, you'd probably be more likely to stay there. Uh, Now, particularly the best and brightest in rural communities, much less likely to be going to church at all, have any kind of religious background. Did you yourself have any kind of, did you go to church in Guyana or at all when you got to Bronx?
1: No. Um, So my mom was raised Catholic, my dad was raised Protestant. That Mm. was not initially uh, a challenge, as it usually isn't when you first get married, and then when you actually For their start, parents? For their parents, no, not at all. But okay. when you start having children, and then you're like, oh... Well,
0: what will they be? Yeah.
1: What are they going to actually do? Um, so, yeah. So instead of ch- making a choice, we kind of did neither. Um, yeah. Uh, we went to... A common ch- t- tale. <laughs> church on like, you know, Catholic church usually on, on big holidays. Um, I've but been.
0: It's fun. Easter's fun.
1: Easter can be. A uh, Christmas Mass. I. I mean, I love all the spectacle of all of it. Um, went to my dad's church sometimes because he did go to church, um, but he didn't really take us necessarily with him all the time. But we, and 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 for him too, it was very much a social yeah uh, thing. Like a lot of friends of his from Guyana had emigrated here as well. And they went to, um, churches in Brooklyn. Most of most Caribbean people, not most, but a lot of Caribbean people live in Brooklyn, as was the case with my dad's friends. And so one of his social uh, outings was to just go to church in Brooklyn and see his friends, you know, before or after church fellowship. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, but no, we didn't really grow up with a specific religion. Um, in, in addition, what's interesting is that two of my sisters, um, became uh, born again Christians later in life. Um, w- I don't know what the sects are. One is church of Christ. The other one, not really sure. Um, and my son, interestingly, is very interested in religion and God, and um, the, we actually read the Bible together. Uh, there's a illustri- um It was like
0: I was going to ask which translation. It was
1: an illustrated. Um, I don't like. I don't
0: like all the, the. I I tend to like. I've seen a few of the children. It is an illustrated children's. Version. Yeah. So there
1: was an ill. It's an illustrated version, but it's it's a graphic novel. So it actually is like a big. It's a big sure. book. Yeah. Um, it's Old Testament. Cool. And it's actually, it's it's great. I'm a big fan of graphic novels and comics, and actually he's developing that taste now. But my sister, uh, one of the born-again Christians, Yola, um, gave it to him as a, a gift um, because she'd given him those little baby baby Bibles before, and we'd read those, and he, again, had expressed interest in it, Was would watch these Bible cartoons. Again, I never was promoting it, but I wasn't saying not to do it because I think there are good stories and I think there are some good morals or um, ways of being that we can get from religion and from from community that you can, and in fact, when I um, had my son, previously not interested at all in really in joining any particular religious group church, I actually searched for one um, for non-believers, and there are some. Um, yeah. because I wanted the community, not because of the. And and again, I like the idea of thinking about philosophy and thinking. I've been about to religion. quite a few
0: Jewish temples, and that's they're basically just church for non-believers.
1: Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> and so and so, I wanted that for for my son.
0: Well, there, there are many, I think, and I've been guilty of it myself in the past to focus on the negative aspects of organized religion, which is why so many folks have decided to like cast it aside. Absolutely, and that can be fine. It is. Uh, probably not the only way to maintain community, find fellowship, and discuss values. Right, there's also, for a very long time, religious institutions were the, the driving force of basically all philanthropy. Absolutely. Uh, not that long ago, most program officers were nuns in the Catholic Church.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> well, they weren't like they were pretty much the only program officers, right? Once we started actually building foundations and everything. In fact, uh, the very first giving advisor I ever interviewed on the podcast. Was Elizabeth McCormick, arguably one of the first giving advisors to like actually use that term. Mm-hmm. She was a nun who was president of Manhattanville College, mm-hmm. uh, which involved a lot of fundraising. Oh yeah, she's a. I was very lucky to get the interview, and I believe it's the only podcast that she ever went on. She's wow. infor- she has unfortunately passed away. I know for a fact that she was the oldest person I ever spoke with. How old was she? I'm not supposed to tell you. There is at one point in the she says she says how old she was at a certain time. So it's possible to listen to that episode and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's uh, interesting. But she was
0: she my, my grandmother was 96 when she died and mm-hmm. Elizabeth was older than that.
1: Wow, good for her.
0: Uh, and so that's why I think she was the oldest person I ever met. Uh, but she did we talked quite a bit about her. She had been in, she got hired by John Rockefeller. Wow to, to set up his foundation in the beginning. Uh, so this is why it was, was a good interview for me to get. That's amazing. Uh, and actually she was up until, the Rockefellers were just paying our bills. Um, like up till the up until the end. Uh, she never held a wallet in her life, right because she joined the convent when she was a teenager, never had any money and they don't they take a vow of yeah. like, they're not allowed they're not supposed to hold the money or whatever. She did want to she left the, she left the nunnery because she met a Jewish man and that what she wanted to marry. <laughs> and so she needed a job. so the rockefellers were like, well, you know we're, we're setting up this thing. It's called a foundation. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're probably good at that kind of stuff, right? You've been fundraising for the college. You've also been a grants officer with the diocese. Uh, they're still, nuns are still mm-hmm. doing that. Uh, and uh, she, a lot of best practice around uh, philanthropy in, at, founda- at the foundation level was uh, stuff that she set up. That's awesome. You may be familiar, you may have even heard of it, but like most Rockefellers and their trust, it's like the one-third, one-third, one-third rule. Yeah, so they have to, they get money, if you're a Rockefeller, you want to imagine there's money that comes to you. Mm-hmm. You have to, I forget, invest a third, donate a third, and and spend a third, I think.
1: Oh, that's funny, because we have... And
0: she she's the one who came up with that.
1: Well, you know, it's funny, because we have a third, a third, a third in our family, but that was not through any anything other than um, uh, just what financial best practices were so this is not something i established actually my son's father established it so that you know he wanted him to grow up understanding money in a way that in a way that i didn't yeah and so uh from very early on he was like you you can spend a third you save a third and we donate a third yes. And um so we have these little piggy banks that are spend save um spend save share and he gets his allowance and he determines which goes in which bucket um, and so yeah. we've been doing that for a couple of years. It didn't really resonate until now that he has a little more understanding of what some of this means. And so this holiday season, we're, you know, we're taking the share and we get to be Santa Claus and we get to give yeah. to other people and, um, trying to instill that as part of his life, which is not something that I grew up with,
0: but mm-hmm. hopefully. Well, um, a big part of the, found- the original Rockefeller Foundation was not just giving away his excess wealth. Which he called like an obscene, he called it obscene at one point. He thought he had too much money, which he did. He did. I <laughs> uh, gave a lot of it away, uh, but uh, a big part, like a big part of what her job was coming in there and running that foundation, was to train future generations of because he knew all these people that are gonna donate money. They're not gonna have to work for it hard like I did, right? And he was worried about them being spoiled or not understanding things or not being generous with it or or who knows what he was worried about. I don't know. I didn't get a chance <laughs> to talk to him. Uh, but, like, David Rockefeller just passed away a few years ago, mm-hmm. had to take classes with this lady growing up in order. Wow. To, you have to, like, pass the trustee school that she set up in order to, like, be able to access your thing. Uh, and uh, it's, I do think that it had, that has reverberated to a lot of folks. And a big part of philanthropy advising is often um, that intergenerational connection. Yes.
1: That's
0: true. Uh, sometimes for good reasons. <laughs> Other times just because the wealth managers would like for the fund to stay... At that particular bank, right? So if you're managing yes. a large yeah. amount of money for a wealthy person, that guy's going to die someday. Yeah, <laughs> right. Which so you you should start thinking before he dies about his inheritors, because it'd be great if they could keep the money at the bank.
1: Yeah, and they provide <sighs> only about all half of
0: them do. Half of them go usually go to some other take the money and go to some other house with it. Uh,
1: but it makes sense as a strategy. Like I uh, I have a lot of friends who work in or run family offices and. The it, it's such a weird world to be in, to be like in this weird family dynamic and the discomfort that most people have around talking about money, but having a lot of money and um, managing money um, and uh, learning about how to be rich, essentially. Like uh, w- one of my former clients had to, it wasn't a trustee school, but it was effectively like, you're rich, now what? Um, and uh, she... I, I, it was actually a good. Exp- it was good for her to have like a peer group of people who were in this unique position, um, but it was again because her parents weren't necessarily comfortable talking to her about their absurd wealth and you know their own discomfort with it, especially not having grown up with wealth. Um, hmm. Anyway, I, th- I, I I do think that those can be useful.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. The one that the one hitch in it that I, that I've noticed. Is oftentimes we like, we put some of this burden onto fundraisers at great organizations. Mm-hmm. That they, not only do they have to raise money for this great organization, but they also have to like help grandpa and the grandkids get along. Yeah. That's now a new thing. They have to be a family dynamics expert on top of like Absolutely. their already overworked role there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're very good at that, great.
1: But if you don't want to do <laughs> it. That's
0: not really something that like I think we should be asked. It's already, I've had to do it myself. I raise money for my own thing. Mm -hmm. uh that's just a lot to ask
1: it is (laughs) and it's it's very it can it can be very and has been at times very odd and uncomfortable and just a weird situation like yeah there needs to be more boundaries and unfortunately because again people and wealth becomes so much about relationships rather than on let's say this is the thing that I want to do and you're going to help me do it, it becomes much more of me coaching you and educating you and becoming like a psychi- a psychologist or something and understanding how your brain works in order to get you to do the thing that I think makes most sense. And so it just becomes this very complicated and um, unnecessary relationship. And unfortunately, a lot of philanthropy is family philanthropy. And mm-hmm. so you do end up having to, to negotiate all
0: of that well, bizarreness. Morgan Stanley and a lot of those places hire... Family psychologists who like, if they're burnt out from the psychology game, they're like, would you like to, did you know that you can buy things with money? (laughs) 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 Like they have like, and they bring them in and they're, they're very good at this stuff.
1: That makes sense. That's a great (laughs) idea. Did not know that.
0: They have the occasional good idea over there. Right? That's exactly. how they're able to manage all the money that they get to... That they They've been, are, been around that for a while. They figured it out. Uh, and in general, that's the one thing that... I mean, they have all kinds of creative strategies and everything, but the goal is the same. We would like our pile of money to be the largest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's what... that's. It, it can seem confusing. <laughs> all the stuff they're doing. Particularly with like... When, if you look at some of the like ultra high net worth events they do and mm-hmm. like other... The marketing materials and mm-hmm. stuff, right? And you're just like... W- like, why are they, why is it being phrased that they would like for the their pile of money to be the largest pile? <laughs> and it just sort of brings, it will bring some extra clarity to it. Uh, so, uh, do you remember, uh, going back to your childhood for a moment, mm-hmm. the first time that you made a gift or did something generous?
1: No, actually. And I when I was reviewing uh, this, I was trying to think, uh, do I have any? Have you,
0: Have you ever? <laughs> is, this, is this something that is this something that has not happened yet? No,
1: it still hasn't. Uh, just kidding. Um, I don't. So I wasn't aware of my own privilege and relative wealth in quotation marks until maybe middle school, um, because I was, you know, I went to a neighborhood school in the Bronx, and then I went to a private school, and so I went from being like a normal kid to being like, oh, there are people who are really, really, really rich. <laughs> uh, and that's actually uh, how my ent- entree into this world even started was, was way back then. And comfort with it, I guess, started way back then. But as a part of um, uh, our school requirements, we had to do community service hours every day, not every day, every year, a certain number of hours that you know increased over time. And so for many years, I worked at a soup kitchen or I volunteered at a soup kitchen, Um, in the Bronx. And that was where I was like, oh, I'm certainly not rich, but we are incredibly privileged. I didn't realize that, you know, within my own sphere, I could, and, and within the the borough of the Bronx, actually, Mm -hmm. I lived one place, my school was one place and the, the soup kitchen was in another place. And it was like, oh wow, we all exist here. And yet we have no connection to one another unless we deliberately seek it out.
0: Did you choose the soup kitchen, or were you told you're volunteering at a soup kitchen? Uh,
1: no, I chose the soup kitchen, and uh, there was a list of different opportunities. That was one of them. And actually, my two of my siblings would go with me, um, and because they, they got more interested in it, too, as a way of like, oh, wow, I also didn't realize that this was
0: here. It's kind of a fun way to volunteer. You meet people. They're all very yeah. grateful. Sometimes the soup's good. Um, Sometimes.
1: Gratitude wasn't <laughs> what...
0: Most of it comes from, like, the staff of the facility?
1: Um, No, the staff was great, and the people who were working there. They're the
0: ones who are very grateful that you're there. Yes. The people who are hungry, they're just hungry.
1: They're just hungry, and we, you know, we served them, and that was, and cleaned up, but we didn't have a ton of interaction with them, um, especially since we were only there for, like, four hours on a Saturday. Um, Later on in life, um, many times, actually, came back to that same soup kitchen. Hmm. Um,
0: uh, What is it called? It's
1: called POTS. Pots, part of the solution.
0: Awesome. This is this is a solid name.
1: It is, <laughs> and it's been there. because
0: the soup comes in pots.
1: Exactly, and we had big pots, <laughs> yeah. um, like the
0: like the like huge like which cauldron, cauldron pots? things. Um, Neat. <laughs>
1: I uh, was a program officer. I when I was at Robin Hood, they were a grant recipient. When I was running Maverick, you were one of our biggest grant recipients.
0: You volunteered, where did you first volunteer at this place?
1: Um, When I was in like seventh grade. So in seventh
0: grade, you volunteered Mm -hmm. there. And then...
1: Like fast forward. At least
0: 20 years later, right? You're working as a program officer and you got to give a grant to the Mm -hmm. place you volunteered at? Yeah. That's pretty neat.
1: Yeah. It was a very cool turnaround, uh, sort of loop
0: uh,
1: to be able to come back and and volunteer there year after year. And then still had engagement with that organization. I think it's a great organization, um, and it's in the same location, but they were able to buy the sort of dilapidated buildings that they were operating out of um, and uh, uh, change them into this these beautiful buildings. Started also by a nun. Yeah, it was uh, started by uh, several members of a local convent. Hmm. Um, sister Mary Alice. She was awesome. Actually it's always some, Sister Mary something. Yeah, there were some great... I have to say, social justice nuns are the... Are the absolute best.
0: Um, yes, uh, ah, the best. They're up there. They're, They're up there. The no, no, there's something. in the conversation.
1: There's, a, there was just, <laughs> there's been a few of them that I've met in my in my travels. The nuns on
0: the bus, and exactly. And a couple of other things I've been, and we've read many proposals written by nuns here. Uh, they are fundraising and giving grants and generally doing good work. Uh, it is my, I grew up down the street from a convent actually, mm-hmm. and they would walk like past the house and everything uh i've i don't really have much of a problem with nuns the uh... i
1: have a memory of when i was younger and going shopping uh, with my mom at some ladies lingerie store so you know getting like undergarments and you know waiting for my mom to finish whatever she was doing in it And and a whole group of nuns came in and they were buying like pantyhose and i remember being like oh right they need this stuff too. I, for some reason it was like shocking to me to see a nun outside of like a religious setting and I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, they're human beings. Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, that was just a funny memory I had. Of-
0: and they do travel in groups.
1: Yes. Often.
0: I, the, I think Elizabeth's the only time I've ever seen one alone. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, you uh, started your education in Guyana and then went to a School in the Bronx for high school.
1: So, Guyana. Guyana. No, it looks like it should be there So, there's three. There's Guyana. Yeah. There's, there's English British Guyana, which is now just Guyana. Then there's Suriname, which was Dutch Guyana. And then there's uh, French Guyana. And I think people often confuse the pronunciation of the French yeah. with the English. Anyway, uh, 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 too much detail. But I actually went to Catholic school run by nuns. In Guyana, and then came to and went to a public school down the road when I was in the Bronx. Uh,
0: Very good, yes. In general, I, so I placed, uh, when I was at Atlas Corps, I placed fellows from 87 different countries. Mm -hmm. And if it's those countries, I will pronounce them correctly, and I know what language they speak, Mm -hmm. and the capital and everything. If any other country, I don't, I, I, well, I have a hard time finding it on the map. Yeah. But I, like, I know a lot about these, I've done visa, I've gotten visas from 87 of them, and I know a lot about those. Some of them are, like, Canada and, like, generally pretty well-known well places. Um, I mean, no one no one has heard of those countries. <laughs> well,
1: also the population, I mean, it's one of those things where similarly
0: to, like, I never got to, rural yeah.
1: drain to the to urban centers, like, there's huge brain drain to everywhere else outside of Guyana. The, the population has been uh, decreasing rapidly. Hopefully, there are some changes that Surprise, will that more never, people
0: there. I mean, I don't even remember having a, like, candidate. From there, and I'm surprised if it be with it being usually if it was an English-speaking country, Mm -hmm. that was the easiest, that was much easier to do fellowship placements because the language was there. Um, But if from it was all it was almost always Colombia or or Brazil Mm -hmm. if it was from South America. Um, I guess they're big, right? That's where people live. Yeah, much,
1: (laughs) much, many more than (laughs) Guyana. There's like maybe six, seven hundred thousand
0: people. Uh, Terrific. Uh, So you went to uh, you graduated high school and you went to where did you go to college?
1: I went to Yale.
0: Yale, Bula Bula. Yes. Uh, a bulldog.
1: That is correct. I was, I, on my Handsome way. Dan.
0: I was briefly on my way through New Haven, um, just just the other day. Uh, and uh, my mother went to Yale. Oh really? A, a, oh that's
1: right. You're wondering There's was a bull, French was... literature
0: professor, correct? Well she went to Wellesley and then she had a PhD from Yale. Um, yes, and, and in French from, from there in, in, I don't know, the 1600s or whatever. Uh, but she has a, she has a stuffed bulldog down in her house. Uh, and, um, uh, is Handsome Dan is his name? That is correct. He is a, he's a, a handsome little fellow. Uh, did you like it at Yale?
1: I loved Yale. I, uh, you know, um, yeah, I can't, I can't, it's funny. I was just talking to someone earlier or, uh, and and I said that the Yale produced two types of people, amazing human beings and real not amazing people um i i don't feel like there's a lot of people that that are sort of just middling um Mm -hmm. but uh yeah i had an incredible experience i've met
0: some from both groups
1: yes you you will
0: uh yesterday's guest went to harvard harvard and we spent a little bit of time talking about that harvard's endowment is speaking of growing the fund as big as possible uh there's head and shoulders above everybody else um, I'm sure Yale's is also large, yes. but I know that I, I tend to focus into zero in on Harvard's because there's this, I think probably twice as big as the next biggest one. How
1: much is it these days?
0: Their endowment is over 50 billion now.
1: Yeah. I think Yale is about half
0: that. Yeah. I Which is still right. it's absurd. a very large amount of money, an it unfathomable is. amount of money. One yeah. of the, my criticisms of the word billion is it sounds so much like million that we think it's just like a little bit more. No, it's a <laughs> lot. Right. And you've got 25 billion of it sitting there. Uh, not for nothing, not pay, paying less taxes than than some other money. I think they do pay some on some stuff, probably. Yeah. Uh, enterprise that vast, uh, and like payroll taxes, to the employees and everything. But like, you know, not the same as if it was if that money was somewhere else. Uh, and obviously, they are they passed the public support test, yeah. so right, they're providing uh, some some benefit there. But like a general, uh, you know, whenever I uh, meet anyone, I went to one of these like very largely endowed schools. Dickinson, where I went, has billions, but Mm single-digit billions. Still Still a kind of crazy amount. One thing that you never hear anyone say is, oh, no, I only have $900 million. (laughs) (laughs) But having that is not enough to get, like, the special billionaire attention that that they get. Um, Anyway, um, a a few things I'm fairly interested in. Uh, When you went to Yale... How much did you understand about the, like, financing of it? And the fi- I mean, surely you knew there were st- scholarships and t- tuition involved? hmm
1: I, I definitely knew there were scholarships and tuition because I had to pay it. Um, and I uh, had financial aid and loans. Um, I had no idea about the size of... I, I mean, again, this was 25 years ago now, so the endowment wasn't quite as large, but I had no idea how much money the institution had. And looking back on it, especially now, I I have a lot of, uh, I, anger isn't the right word and resentment isn't quite the right word either, but like the fact that tuition is even a thing that they make kids at all pay, like who, you know, and, and those have, that has gotten better over time, but it shouldn't even be like a thing at all. Like, you shouldn't have to take out loans to go to these schools because they have more than enough money. Taking out
0: a loan so that you can give it to someone with that much wealth already is... The loans are, are, are strange to me. The other thing that I... Like, I remember when I was at Dickinson, and I imagine this happened at some point at Yale, I got reminded pretty regularly that the cost for me to attend Dickinson was actually more than the tuition. Thanks. And that I owed... Like, I owed my being there to alumni donors, they made that. They were making that very clear to me from the very beginning, which I'm sure is, I now know, is best practice for fundraising. They were setting yeah. me up,
1: yeah, to become long
0: attorney. term, right? That, in addition to the like, if let's say someone's already taken the loan out to be there, to go in and like try to press that narrative on them, I, that if anything's going to make me mad, that's that's
1: well, it's na- a lack
0: of candor, and it's it's very close to straight up dishonest.
1: Yeah, and and, and, I, and I these days I. Again, I find I I am not an alumni donor to to either my high school or to Yale. Um, My next question
0: is, do you donate to Yale? No.
1: Um, Both have more than enough money. Um, If they never took another cent
0: from... They can make money, too. They got real estate. Rent it to people.
1: Yes, exactly. They own most of New Haven. Um, but if they never took another dollar from a student, it would make no difference. In most and, schools, this and, is the
0: situation. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so to me, again, I'm like, why are you even... Why is this something that you put especially lower-income people through? Um, and, and then make them pay... Lo- I mean, I paid off my loans many years after I graduated, but like... Again, it, it should not be an issue, and and what it furthers as a student, as a lower income student, there is a is a class divide and and a feeling of um, uh, just being less than. You know, you're the ones who are serving your your fellow students. You're the one who is cleaning up after your fellow students. Inherently, I think that that is wrong, um, and it uh, the fact that I spent in some years twenty hours working when I could have been doing extracurriculars or just studying or doing nothing Mm -hmm. to me is, is, was a poor use of time. I, I think it was good from a development standpoint because it really helped me manage time and think about things like that. But I could have learned those skills later in life and, um, uh, so yeah, <laughs> so definitely don't get it. To, and, when, and unfortunately, I just think that
0: I, when you're eight, you're 18, you show up at college and it's like you're very excited to be there. You're gonna believe whatever they're whatever they they dishing out.
1: Yeah,
0: and to like take that position and be like set yourself up for future fundraising success off of the off of these folks uh, is rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I was reading about recently is that um, so folks who. Uh, Can very clearly tie their financial success to where they went to school Mm -hmm. and who like intellectual like maybe it's not true but they they intellectually think it Mm -hmm. so like I make a lot of money because of my Yale degree Mm -hmm. right they would be less likely to donate to Yale if they personally didn't enjoy their time there someone might enjoy their time at Yale uh, and then not have a successful career right and not be and not be able to be like well I make money because of Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. like the the financial value is not in their picture. But if they, like, enjoyed the parties and had a good social life, they will be much more likely to donate. Uh, and the, like, that's the, that's, the, you know, missed out If we have a, fond, if a fondness for a place, yeah. we're much more likely to support it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really highlights for me that, like, giving decisions are very often not intellectual decisions. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And so, to me, whenever people are like, oh, I'm going to give $50 million to this university, I'm always like, why? I mean some in some universities... it will be good
0: press they'll write about it
1: some for some
0: colleges universities
1: yes exactly
0: if you gave me that much money i wouldn't spend it well. well. i would just put it in i would make it i would have a 50 million dollar endowment and <laughs> i bet you wouldn't i actually. can't instantly make my budget go from 75,000 to 50 million I, I don't know how to do that
1: yes you could but that would be <laughs> assuming that you wanted to if someone gave it to me personally i know exactly what i would do with it if someone gave it to like you would figure out how to do it because all you would you would pivot and be able to support. No, I know,
0: I know what exactly I would exactly. If I'm assuming I'm allowed, I would set up an endowment fund to run the organization. But I that's not not really why people give. It's 50 not a million dollars. The people uh, who give fifty million dollars, I don't. That's not something no. But would you really should.
1: set up an endowment? Would you or would you? Right now, yeah,
0: I don't. It's a one. This isn't a like. This is a fun hypothetical and everything, but like it's not in any danger of happening. So so
1: yes, it's a fun <laughs> hypothetical. But I suspect that. After doing the work that you've been doing, I for would increase so the long. budget a
0: little bit. But I
1: not even talking about the budget. <laughs> I, I think all those great applications that you get, I bet you would at least find a way to support some of the great ideas that come through you.
0: Good, uh, probably not. No, I mean we're not a grant maker, and I, I very much don't want to be. And I'm assuming if someone gave fifty million dollars one funded list, they wouldn't be giving it to me because I'm just going to re-grant it. Yeah, I We're a review program, and quite frankly, it's not that expensive to run mm-hmm. a review program. Like even in my wildest dreams, and I've done, I've put down like my wildest dream budget. It's not very big. Fifty million would cover it for forever.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's what I would do. That's what I would do with it. I think there's lots of people giving grants. There are. In fact, a lot that of... doesn't. They don't. And I. Some of them ever are having no impact at all. The money's mm-hmm. going out, and nothing's really happening. I. That's. That's not for the. the I noticed that it was difficult to get your grant proposal reviewed and that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I, so the, the, to me just to give it to the, and not for nothing, the vast majority of the grant, the proposals we read, like aren't like right now based off of what I've read, not ready to be funded. Yeah. Promise and just needs, but I'm, I can't just give, I've, uh, hardly ever received a like proposal that I, that I liked so much that I like wrote my own money to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? That's not what they're coming, they don't apply here for money either. I
1: understand. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like I, I and again, maybe I'm just a natural, it's just naturally what I, my inclination would be to, like, I, I just wouldn't know what else to do with it because it's like, I don't, I also don't believe in perpetuity, um, or endowments. So, uh, that's, that's the other thing.
0: I think people will always need, there will always be proposals of some kind and getting extra perspective on them will always be useful. I know some, I hear that a lot. It's kind of a cliche in the space now that like all nonprofits should be like planning to put themselves out of business. I think some should,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? But like other, we, I don't believe we'll ever get to the point where reviewing <laughs> will become useless.
1: No, I didn't. I, I, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> right? wasn't suggesting that. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm sure you've heard that cliche before. Oh, yes. No. I've heard people very aggressively be like, if you're not planning to put yourself out of business, then you're doing it wrong, right? And I'm just, I don't, like if you're running a soup kitchen, Maybe. <laughs> probably not though, I,
1: and, and and that's an organization have that have,
0: they should have at least some thought of, like the systemic nature of the
1: problem. Absolutely, but poverty is not going to be something that probably yes, goes
0: expecting away. the soup kitchen to to. we actually, in my hometown, there's a there's a group, a nonprofit that maintains our trails. We have a really cool walking trail system. Uh, also, at this time of year, uh, our, uh, our Maine's homeless. We don't have that many, but we have some of them. In uh, general, this time of year, they are moving south. They're going. They're, they're trying to get away from the cold. Uh, and a lot of the folks from Bangor are currently in our hometown, and they have set up a little encampment on one of the trails. And the, this is a nonprofit run by volunteers. They have absolutely no money. Like it is an unfunded situation. They're just trail. They're trail people who care about the trails in their town, and they're managing it. They should not be asked to, to clear to do anything with this homeless. Absolutely. <laughs> so what they and they and they did. What they did is they say, listen, this trail. Is now enter your own risk.
1: Mm.
0: We we are not able to to we can't call the insurance company. Like this is not something we're managing anymore, right? There's a hundred tented individuals here. Like we are six volunteers. The town is just like, oh, how dare it! Like they're so mad at this nonprofit for not for not solving the problem.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's so, it, it's amazing that people. They're just like
0: you're burying your heads in the sand, and, like you wouldn't. Instead of finding a solution, like what solution? What do you expect an unfunded group of six volunteers to do about this?
1: It's also so completely outside their purview.
0: Yeah, and if they were to do anything, it would be wildly inappropriate, and they would fail.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. It's it's been it's there's we have a, we have a small there's like thirty percent of my hometown are just little grumblers who complain about anything and who are particularly angry angry at the homeless for being lazy drug addicts for being homeless <laughs> yeah Needleville is what they like to call the little encampment down there I to be clear I've seen absolutely no it's near where are my office up there uh, as far as I can, they seem just like people who are camping I've seen not a single needle or anyone obviously on drugs <laughs> it's not all that unpleasant really. It's just like there's some people camping on a trail. Yeah. But they these folks who are really only barely above homeless themselves, like they're only barely housed, and I think they may not even know that, this is an opportunity for them to look down on somebody. And...
1: Yeah. Well, and also, you know, we have... Uh, it's mean, all very unfortunate. Well, I mean, talk about... I mean, and this relates back to our larger issues around philanthropy, money, etc. in this country, right? People think that, first of all, that poverty is a personal failing. So there's yeah. that. And then um, we have such negative beliefs of of the poor or unha- and 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 people who don't have homes or jobs or or could be addicts. It, it doesn't really matter. Actually, there's plenty of people who lives in ho- who live in homes who are addicts, and plenty of people who yeah. don't live in homes and aren't. Like addiction isn't res- re- resigned believe, to just one group of people either.
0: Of the folks criticizing this encampment, I think there's probably more addicts in the critical group um painkillers or whatever yeah, they're, or exactly. whatever they're on it's a it's a, it's a pretty big drinking down too <laughs> but
1: again but that goes into when we when we even even going back again to philanthropy and where money goes there's so much negative belief around people who are poor that like we like many philanthropic or governmental programs actually are so like this is what you need to do with your dollars. You can't spend it outside of this and you can't make choices on your own because clearly you failed and you can't do this. And it's like, well, you know, yeah. that's not true. <laughs>
0: but homelessness is a, and and housing, so there's several different issues that, I, that I've that seen people conflate sometimes and I try to avoid it. But there's homelessness and then there's also housing security, yeah. which are not the, which, not the same thing. Yeah. Really. Very similar, yeah. right? And there's also for, there's food security, which is very similarly, right? Many, many issues tied up in this, but like sticking with just homelessness. This is a very good uh, this is sort of proof to me that like there are some systemic things that just that fundamentally aren't working. Yeah. Right. You've put a lot of money into this issue and you've really not done anything about about it. Right. by, you I, mean, by you I mean by you I mean all so of Flint. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in fact government funding towards it Absolutely. and everything. Another one that's like less interesting to talk about is traffic. Do you know how much money we've spent like trying to like make traffic better in certain areas? <laughs> and you can't and you can't do it. Uh, I've I've known some people who worked at um, IBM on the like uh, on, on trying to fix New York's pra- traffic problem, and like they and down here they tried things they tried things like all of they're trying new things everywhere right if you add a lane it doesn't change anything the traffic congestion stays the same they just fill up that they just instantly yeah. fill up that lane yeah <laughs> it's just nothing it's a it's and, and, and with with home, like one of the issues with homelessness is the like demanding certain kinds of impacts before the grant gets spent Mm -hmm. this is really complicated issue connect interconnected with like nine other issues Mm -hmm. and that's this is something where restrict like restricted grants work very well for like researching gallbladder cancer i think right and also sometimes for the arts
1: yeah
0: or actually education it's in a big college right you go to yale and you're like we really want to see this Part of the school get better mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. restricting it towards certain things. Or at a capital campaign, lots of times it makes sense, right? With these, like, with a social an intractable social issue, like that's how you make it intractable. Like honestly, I think that the the, the circles and the dances we make some of these folks do, who are trying yes. to resolve these issues, and it's like different. You'll have a different like corporate funders make them do one dance, yeah. government funders make them do a different dance. Absolutely. When I was in education for a while, we would have several, we at SEED, there were many different ways you could track our impact, right? High school graduation rate or college rate. Sometimes the foundations would want not where they went to college, but how, uh, the uh, when they, how many years it's taking them to graduate from yeah. college, Yeah, uh, slightly different metrics I needed for each one. Every single grant we had, none of it, none of it unique. The organization itself was not, we didn't, if you asked us, like, what, what do you care, what metrics do you care, like, no, well, depends on which funder, <laughs> right? And at, at uh, education is also somewhat intractable, and, right, like, generally, I'm a fan of letting these practitioners try to solve these problems, like finding the best local practitioners and letting them run the school or try to help the homeless in their community, right? Uh, the general idea, and this has been, um, I came from D.C., with there's a lot of people who are very familiar with social issues and like aware of how intractable homelessness is, right? And then I, you know, back in my hometown, uh, a lot of people who are most angry about our homeless problem there, which is insignificant compared to DC's. Sure. <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell, all these folks are very happy with their situation. While oh, they may be technically homeless, they're not interested in a job, they have a nice tent, and they're very happy with what's going on. They might be getting some. Some of them are veterans, and yeah. so they are getting a little check, and they're very happy. They're perfectly capable of living in the woods, and they like doing it. Um, and that's and so if you go with them, and you're like, well, as long as they're willing to work and follow these rules, then like we'll right that that's none of that's going want. to work. <laughs> this isn't even you're not even solving his problem for him, right? He might have some things he needs that can make things better for him, uh, but like the, right now, you have this large group, and they're just like they're. They're really, they're really confused why there isn't a like tiny house development hmm. in a certain parking lot, and I just like it's weird to go from a place where like, where I or it's full of people who are intimately familiar with social issues, and then to go to another place where you've got people who are, like really don't know what they're talking about, none just as confident with with their <laughs> solutions.
1: But that's that's the case all across the board <laughs> with every issue. When there's, there's no a lot and, of people who don't know the underlying issues and feel quite. Capable of, of of pontificating about what this and
0: there are no Bobos be. anymore come out and be like no that's not the truth like we've like lost control of like any form of universal truth everyone's opinion has to be respected right like these like when I, I'm in my local groups on Facebooks and sometimes I like try to chime in about like why that policy won't work mm-hmm. from my considerable experience. Right. And just like, well, you know, that's your opinion, I think, and I have my opinion. I'm like, yes, but mine, but I know what I'm talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if, if only research guided decisions or, or, or evidence guided decisions, we, I think, would make a lot of different choices, both individually as well as socially. Um, you know, one of the things I was just talking to a friend about is, uh, you know, child care. Childcare should be universal. Um, it can be easily funded. Yeah. It can be done. We've chosen not to do it. All the research shows that we should, from an economic standpoint, from a well-being standpoint, whatever. But people are like, no, you chose to have kids, so therefore,
0: yeah. F you. Um, when we... The, we uh, you've got... Re- so regulated childcare is prohibitively expensive for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. So the, the number one choice currently is unregulated healthcare. The whole point of having regulations... <laughs> is to reg- is to regulate the childcare. Yeah. But like once those reg- if those regulations make it so expensive, no one can afford it. Then you're then they're not doing anything for anyone.
1: Exactly. And even the regulated <laughs> ones, the people who work there are still
0: so tragically underpaid. Yeah, I know. In in particular in D.C., I know there's these like extremely underpaid places. There's basically just like a English basement, right? That mm-hmm. the, and the parents drop the kids off there. And, like if you're in Ann's Morgan, you ever see like a group of twenty kids yeah. being led on a rope? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: I see it all the time. I see it all
0: the time, and that's what—that's what we got. That's what, and you're right. We absolutely there are children. We know they exist. We know they need to be cared for. It's not like this. None of this came as a surprise, and anybody should be in the budget, right? And but we, we act like it's a personal choice, a personal responsibility. They need to care for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes it is. Some,
1: in some cases sure but I think that you know many
0: people are able to like wait until they have the financial bearing to like put, look. Like, I, that would be an ideal
1: that would be an ideal situation <laughs> it would also but even with that
0: given what any, like no matter who costs. you are you should know enough about life to know that like not everybody gets to do the not ideal situation the,
1: the, the choice doesn't and, yeah and also
0: or should they have to really
1: the cost even for someone who was well paid was staggering um, you know, and quickly having a way at my, at my savings that I had accumulated over many years. Childcare is an absurdly expensive thing. And I wasn't asking for a subsidy or anything like that. But to me, I was like, if I can't afford this, how do, how do mm-hmm. people afford it? They don't.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it's a, it doesn't happen for a lot of them. The, um, uh, the main reason you're here is because this this season is focused on giving advisors. Mm. Uh, I uh, and we'll that's what we'll, we're going to talk about your career as a giving advisor for mm. the rest for the rest of the episode. Sure. Uh, who's giving to you advise currently?
1: Um, okay, so I run a um, a foundation called Inherent Foundation. I'm the inherent a- inherent managing director, first staff person of the foundation. Um, almost a year in.
0: Um, you mentioned the nine ninety. Is this a private foundation?
1: It is. It is. Um, we do get support from Inherent Group, which is um, an investment manager, hmm. um, and uh, funding, as you know, funding and back office support. Um, but you know, the the, the the primary donor is the CEO um, of uh, Inherent Group, um, and
0: John Inherent.
1: Uh, Uh, His name is Tony Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been... uh, Is that his
0: middle name, Inherent?
1: No. (laughs) Inherent is not his name. Uh, All right. Previously, I uh, have worked with... I worked at the um, Milken Institute Center for uh, Strategic Philanthropy, and we had multiple clients, donors. uh, Yeah, multiple clients that we uh, did advising for. Um, and then when I was at Maverick Capital, that was a corporate foundation, uh, but supported through employee giving. So um, I ran the foundation, but I also worked with a lot of the employees individually on their giving and board stuff and learning how to be better givers or whatever. Um, I am, and as I have evolved in the in my career in philanthropy and advising, um, much more fluid I think in terms of the way I think about giving and impact in quotation marks um when I was younger and more uh and frankly just less experienced and less evolved as a human being um I was like this is how people should give and they should give to things that have a you know are you you know using their dollars efficient efficiently and um, I still think that that's the case but in terms of what I think is efficient that has changed like you know we used to have the, the standard of you know what overhead should be and now i don't really care what
0: it is uh um i that used was to think when i started as a fundraiser it was the like best you were hearing it from everybody and they said it like it was i remember when i first heard it i thought it was like a like an actual law yeah felt felt like it that you can't spend more than 10 percent on administrative costs which is insane which is so low it's disgusting I spend like forty five percent on overhead, but like, <laughs> and my, none of my donors care about that. They,
1: I don't. I, I mean, it's again, never come up. As long as it's you're doing your job, I don't really care. Um, and 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 when, everything costs money.
0: Everything costs everything so much. Everything money
1: costs so <laughs> much. And if you want something to be done well, sometimes you actually do need to pay for it. Yeah. Or depending on where the organization is located, their rent could be one of their biggest line items. Not even their staff.
0: And moving back to Maine was nice on that. Oh, gosh. I have a much nicer office for a third of the cost.
1: That's amazing. But, again, and unrestricted multi-year giving is something that I push everyone to do. It's like, why are you trying to starve people? If you want something done, it should be done. And and I'm not saying that's across the board for During our recent
0: virtual symposium, we made some recommendations to funders. And number one was multi-year general operating gifts. Uh, but we did. We talked a little bit about like some of the challenges there. Absolutely. So like, yes, those are great. Obviously, as a fundraiser, woohoo! Right? Mm-hmm. Not not really anything you'd want more than right dollars for the for, for a while, right? That you can spend on whatever you need. Yeah. To spend it on, uh, as a donor though, right? Maybe maybe you have unlimited funds, and you can go around making ten year long general giving yeah. gifts to to new groups every year. Uh, but most people will run out of money quick, quicker than you think. Doing multi-general year, Uh, so you need it it does require you to be even more thoughtful about who you select. Well, absolutely, and possibly to select fewer grantees. Absolutely,
1: yes. So I am also a proponent of I'd rather give bigger chunks to a smaller group uh, and have greater involvement from you know advisory capacity building standpoint, whatever it is, than have. 50 grant recipients at $10,000 where I don't feel like I have a relationship or I feel like the dollars are actually making a difference. Um, I get it, though. I I also understand that we have to be flexible because, again, we talked earlier on about how giving is emotional, giving is relational. And so some of your gifts are not going to, quote unquote, make sense or going to be perfect or whatever standard that you're holding yourself to. But I think we have to allow for that. Um, I think we have to allow for a mixed group of like there's... I give to tons of stuff. My primary gift is to the organization I sit on the board of. That's the one that I advocate the most for. Um, But within my portfolio of like $25 gifts, like I'll give to everything that I, that I am many things that I'm asked for, many things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's kind of just a, I think at least a good rule of thumb, there's certain things that you focus your time and your energy on and the greatest amount of your, the greatest percentage of your giving. But there's going to be things on the periphery um, or, or organizations like food security organizations that might need money in perpetuity because people are hungry. Maybe we will solve the, whole, the, the, the hunger crisis at some point, but not for a while. Um, that's okay. I think mm-hmm. it's okay to have a mix.
0: Uh, so when we... Uh, I think the way we first met, actually, was I was trying to interview... Catherine Bradley mm. for the podcast. You worked for her, yes, right, and it was called City Learn Serve or something. City like Bridge. That. City Bridge. Learn Serve is a completely different thing, <laughs> but I like guess two nouns. Um, the um, uh, you, so Catherine Bradley's pretty well known donor, but like that was you wouldn't was you weren't doing donor advising there. No,
1: no, I was actually. So I worked at City Bridge when it. When it moved from City Bridge Foundation, which was the family philanthropy... I think we met
0: in the Watergate.
1: Yes, exactly. Now it's City Bridge Education, which is a public charity. There is still City Bridge, the foundation, the family foundation, but that's like... I didn't have anything to do with that after we transitioned. Sure. Um, and then I was actually doing institutional fundraising for City Bridge Education.
0: Uh, and then before that, Robin Hood mm-hmm. Foundation up in that's New York. A, that's correct. Which is a very large charity funder of... but it's a, So they are they raise money from... The Wealthy in New York.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and somewhat... And I guess it could be called giving advising because they don't... Robinhood doesn't just keep the money. They then give it... They do give grants out to... Exactly.
1: Yeah, they give I grants... I don't really know. I've
0: never, like, talked to anyone at Robinhood, but it's very well known.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, raise money, it's not... A, it, it's not endowed. Um, they do have a, you know, cash reserve.
0: It's like the elite, elite of New York. Uh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. The 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 billionaires. Um, they go of, to fancy tuxedo York. events. Not anymore, actually. They, you know, they're trying to be cool. They were, so it's they always were, like... For, it was once
0: upon a time a, they, like, they still have a, a very a fancy sh- tuxedo event.
1: They have a very big event. It's not a tuxedo event. Explicitly mm-hmm. not tuxedo. It's explicitly not black tie. But it is still a very expensive, very fancy event. Hmm. Um, uh, at the Javits Center, like 4,000 people. Um, it's actually an incredibly well-run event. Um, they run great events. Um. So I worked there. Uh, now, actually, they do. I think do more explicit philanthropy advising because they have now set up DAFs, uh, which is a very smart da- idea. Da-
0: if, especially if you want the amount of money you manage to be the largest pile. Uh, it, when I started in philanthropy, people would start a foundation. Probably now it's a it's a DAF.
1: Exactly. But,
0: um, the 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 thing with those is that for the as a fundraiser. it's Difficult, too. Very. The the system with foundations and everything was a nice, like, there was some professional courtesy there. I could look up your giving and all that without having to bother you about it. Yeah. Uh, And vice versa, you could look up my 990 and see how we, like, without, like, and we could be doing the research on each other and, like, conduct the administration of generosity from our respective sides in a, like, professional capacity. I think we threw DAFs into the mix without, like, any consideration of the, like, professional relationships there. Uh, and it's it's the general thing. Whenever someone comes to me and says I've just started a DAF, I like I do try to remind them. I'm like, you know, that does make things difficult for the fundraiser, because certainly the wealth manager who sold you on the DAF in the first place isn't going to point that out.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you for doing that. Actually, you know, I don't.
0: I get a lot of my gifts now from DAFs. They arrive nine months after the donor initiates them.
1: It's so I think there's a great <laughs> administrative aspect of it, obviously. The problem is that people put their money there, and it just sits there, or it goes to their alma mater, or it goes to some random thing that they've asked the yep. uh, uh, their their managers to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so they are so disconnected from it, and uh, that's the to me the problem. I think there is ways to do it better.
0: They have start. They will. I've seen in their material sometimes they talk about they're like, well, we gave out eighty six percent or whatever this year. I'm like, yes, but it's all tax receipted. One hundred percent of it got a tax receipt. So you hoarded fourteen percent. <laughs> but they'd say it like a positive, like yeah. they Look, like this number's going up, right? It, before DAFs, it was 100, that was 100%. You had to, the money had to get to the, you shouldn't be, I, in general, if I were going to do a regulatory fix, it would be like, you don't get the receipt until the is actually yeah. at yeah. an operating charity, yeah. which quite frankly, I don't know why you would. When I, I remember, I think they might have changed this with one of the tax laws, it's hard to keep up, but I think you used to, like, the only one who could send you a receipt is the actual C3. But I think that's the DAF no. has a seat. They have their own seat. That's how they're able to do it. Exactly. That that
1: and that's the problem.
0: That is a. What and are they can, doing? They're can. not. They're not charity operators. They just have paperwork.
1: And as a result, too, as you <laughs> said, there's no way to be like, okay, who did you get? Because you know, Fidelity gives out billions of dollars on a an basis. So but like, who's going through their list of billions? Someone in
0: April gave me $220. Uh, the check. I don't have the check, and I don't know who that person is yet. So, my standard as a fundraiser is I want to acknowledge gifts within, within forty-eight hours. But this particular DAF is making it impossible. I don't think I'm. I actually don't think I'm going to get the check. I think they're that they're they're planning to keep it, or they're going to make it too hard. This is it's it. insane. And it is actually almost every time I get a check from a DAF, and I need now I need to spend time like reminding my evaluators that if they give through a vehicle, that they actually need to follow up to the vehicle, with the vehicle and make, to make sure, sure they do, and anything. tell me that it's coming so that I can follow up with them too. Because I'm pretty sure there's a bunch, there's probably there's donors. Lot. So, uh, oh, and then the like, so Benevity manages like a lot of workplace giving programs, yeah. and that's that they're worse than most staffs. Um, so if you like, if you volunteer with me, a lot of a lot of folks at work will like, they'll donate to anywhere you volunteer mm-hmm. at. and yeah. That's managed by Benevity, and so you just tell your HR manager where you volunteered, and they initiate it. And I never, fi- I don't find out about it, and Benevity doesn't send me the check. They just keep that money.
1: Well, I think it's... And they
0: think... That donor thinks they don't to me and that I never thank them. Yeah. This, is, this is a very bad... And I know it's happening, but I don't know who they are. It's nothing I can do to fix it.
1: There's nothing you can do because it's completely... There's a, a wall. There's a wall. Like, you don't you don't have access to that information and they're not incented to do anything about it. Yep. And it's completely, like... Theoretically, it should work and it should be, like, a really easy, fluid process from an administration standpoint. The people are managing the money... They just, you don't have to deal what with, object, like, dealing I, with the taxes. is fine. Made,
0: I've made donating to Unfunded List very easy. I don't need Benevity's help. You
1: don't need anyone's help.
0: I can provide a tax receipt. I can, I can acknowledge it quickly. i right about on my someone. website. None of the services that they, like, go out there and, like, talk about to these workplace programs are, like, real. I don't need any of it. Like, if that person, if that HR manager could just do that donation to, directly to my nonprofit and get that receipt, like, Benevity's not... Doing anything other than holding it up, but they've got like a marketing team. It's they've very good at convincing. It's very good at convincing these folks. Um, but like, it's the the of the things I plan to. Like, sometimes you can't fight city hall, <laughs> and like, actually, i yeah, the one, I think that's a bad expression because you can city hall. First of all, those are very nice people down there. Pretty well organized. You don't need to fight them. They're just trying to help you get your paperwork. Yeah, right. And if you needed to fight them, you probably can't. People have sued city hall many Absolutely. times and won. You can't fight Google, Facebook. Like, you can't really fight Twitter, right? Yeah. Like, you have a complaint or something that... Ha- like, you can't... There's no real people reading your complaint. Like, you, they, that's who you can't... Absolutely can't fight. And benev is the same thing. Whenever I, like, find out about these checks and try to follow up on it, it's just I get... They open a ticket, and then they, like, immediately ask me, like, how was the service you received? I'm like, I haven't received any yeah, sir, service. So how would I... <laughs> <laughs> um... So, um... Early in your, like, what's interesting to me is early in your career, you were doing things that are very similar to giving advising, right? Wealthy people in New York want support poverty. Robin Hood helps them, yeah. is, is, is helping them to do that, right? Kathy Katherine Bradley has some money, really cares about education, is, um, and, like, really cares, and has been been uh, operating a variety of vehicles, right? A lot of doing them. everything that she can to, like, be involved. That like, guy, that was the name that came up this, all the time in my early fundraising days in in DC, uh, so not just like running grant making and running a charity, but also like using her name and um, being an issue advocate and all of that. But again, not not um, a donor advisor there. Mm-hmm. You your first donor advising is this is Center for Strategic Philanthropy.
1: I would say uh, no. My first donor advisor, donor Maverick
0: ad- Collective.
1: Maverick Maverick Collective something else, but Maverick f- charitable. Maverick capital foundation <laughs> Jeez, i can't even speak maverick capital foundation i would say was my first real advising actually there was one thing before that but it was quickly defunct mm-hmm. but um that was my first real advising role because i was setting up the foundation but then again also working very closely with um uh, members of the t- of the staff who were all at that point um Generating a fair amount of wealth or earning, um, starting to get there.
0: Um, so is, is it like, is this is like—is this another investment firm, like in? in was it? It was.
1: A, yeah, it was a hedge fund. Okay. And so the people there donated to the foundation, and so there was foundation giving, but then there was also individual giving that I'd help people with, like, oh, you know, I care about. So this just saying, and
0: just like Rockefeller hired a nun a long time ago, mm-hmm. this investment house is like, we, we want to, we need to hire somebody, uh, and here's this great lady. She's worked at Robin Hood and for Catherine Bradley, and she can help us. That's generally the thinking? Out of order, but yes.
1: So Robin Hood, Maverick, City Bridge.
0: Oh, so you would never you yeah. know. Okay. Uh, but then uh, then you did get you were head were you the director of the Center for Strategic Philanthropy?
1: I was a director. So multiple multiple director. Di- multiple directors. Your title was director? Yes, director, Center mm-hmm. for
0: Strategic Philanthropy.
1: And that was more explicitly consulting
0: and advising. So that yeah, that's where that people are setting up DAFs.
1: People are setting up DAFs, trying he to figure out there. which 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 governance structure made sense. Um, sometimes it made sense for us to be just holding their money and giving it out if effectively as their uh, outsourced foundation.
0: I mean, he can't own stock, but he'll he can manage. Well, no, he's the. It's a public.
1: It's a charity. So charity,
0: um, and so it's what's interesting to me is like you know there's some overlap between like managing an investment fund Absolutely. and managing a big philanthropy fund. Absolutely. And um, right, you're still able to like, use the fund management skills right, going into a new sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there are some super major differences.
1: Absolutely. Lots and
0: lots <laughs> of differences. You don't get to get any return off of it. And one of the things I was talking about yesterday, uh, which was uh, sort of the first time Chandler brought this up, and so the first time I've really thought about it through this lens. Uh, so if you're, looking, if you're considering making a donation and you look at a small nonprofit. Uh, you might see, you might learn that the culture there is not great. Mm. Uh, everyone's like, everyone's a little bit overworked. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the boss is like a little bit, is like burnt out and like somewhat of a toxic personality or like just has some flaws with his leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of it stems from the fact that they don't have enough funding and everyone's doing too much work. Like that's mm-hmm. the problem, right? Which could be solved by you making a large grant to yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> But you won't make that grant. Because of those problems. It depends. You might. Um, and it's a decision that certainly some philanthropists say like, Absolutely. this toxic culture, I don't want to fund it.
1: Absolutely. Even though the
0: funding is exactly what they need to fix that.
1: If we can identify that that is the core issue and not a leadership, an endemic leadership mm-hmm. issue, yeah, then I'm, I'm like,
0: This guy's greatest job—he's just never been trained as a manager.
1: I and I, I've met a lot of
0: people like that.
1: And I'm currently funding some organizations where the leadership is just like it was a homegrown organization. They're doing—they have the germ of a great idea. They need to be "quote unquote" professionalized, which is something that I'm questioning as a philanthropist or philanthropy advisor at this point because that just means. Acting in a way that is much more uh, "quote unquote" white, um, uh, uh, and and appearing to fit into certain parameters. Anyway, um, but yeah, I'm thinking of someone right now. He's a he's great. He has great passion, great vision. He does not have a great leadership team. Um, But he is a natural leader and the organization is already doing well in spite of that. And if you're able to sort of identify where the real challenges are, you can give, I I gave them an unrestricted gift and I'm going to be like, here, use it for what you want. I suggest that you get an org coach. Mm -hmm. I suggest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here's a list of people that I know that might be great. But again, it's unrestricted. I didn't ask for this. An- is
0: fascinating. So, f- as from the on the uh, on the investment side of things, mm-hmm. a similar organization that has a for profit structure mm-hmm. that we can invest in and get returned from might look like an extremely solid investment because we know exactly what needs to be fixed. And we know how we can use money to fix it. Mm-hmm. I think, in it, like, for, there are VC firms
1: Absolutely. where what I just
0: described is exactly what they look for.
1: Absolutely. However,
0: there are foundations where what I just described is what they—they they might literally have it on their website though we do not fund these things.
1: Absolutely, and that's—and I think—and you doing that that's the advising
0: problem. for investors, and being—and right, yeah, using that strategy—is that a—is it? Do you think the fact that they come from an investment world makes them more tolerant to no? In fact, sort the of, complete
1: opposite. My, his, my history of working with very wealthy people in the finance sector, PE, VC, whatever, is that they're far more conservative with their philanthropic dollars than they are with their investment dollars.
0: So why do you suppose that is? Because I've seen that. They the same decision, in the same situation, Absolutely. basically. You've just changed the tax code of the organization.
1: Because for some... Honestly, if I, could, if I knew the answer to that question, I think I, I would be a lot more successful. (laughs) Um, I don't actually understand. It's when I sort of explain to them that it's the same situation, that they're like, oh yeah, I guess that does make sense. But it's somehow people feel a lot less risk tolerant with their philanthropic dollars than they do with their investment dollars. Like we have super high tolerance for risk in investing. It's like, yeah, it could work. It could also completely fail and I lose all my money. But when it's like a, a nonprofit. Somehow we were like, well, it has to be successful. Well, first of all, we have to think about what success looks like. But also, it's an idea. Like the, it's I an don't idea. know that much
0: about the hedge fund industry, but it's about like hedging bets. Exactly. You make a risky one, and then you you, you balance it's that. High
1: risk, high reward.
0: With other, or, or if you have enough capital to make a very large number of risky bets, you know that's something that...
1: Exactly. A certain, and exactly. And they, within your get, portfolio, get, one might be successful. They get very
0: specific about these numbers, too. Right? They're like we're doing this many plays because, yeah. and, and in fact, I've heard instances where like they will literally invest in like any blockchain thing, mm-hmm. right? In the, in the be- or in a beginning of new technology, like literally they don't even they don't need to see anything. They're just looking to make to get into a piece of literally everything in the field because they know something's going to come out exactly, right? And then for when it comes to a social problem, right? Instead of just investing in everyone trying to, they don't that same strategy could be a real game changer. Yeah. <laughs> And we don't see it. Uh, Is there a chance that perhaps they will, like, come along to this conclusion?
1: I think so. I think that, thankfully, in the last few years, I've seen far more trends in philanthropy. Again, we still have to actually execute on it rather than talk about it. But I've seen far more trends in philanthropy of people being like, you know what? A, (laughs) these people actually know more about this issue than I do. Um, B, these dollars have to go out. So them out there um and and i think that we do have leaders a lot first of all a lot of pushback in philanthropy in general over the last few years around social issues and you know hoarding wealth hoarding from in philanthropy um so there's i think that the culture change is happening again i don't think it's being executed as much um uh, i also see that um people like Mackenzie bezos oh sorry excuse me Mackenzie scott i do it all um, the time uh, so apologies. I hate this. Is this that, that
0: Scott is such a regular name? That's why I think that's why. I don't do yes. this with like anybody else. Like I
1: well I I caught I caught myself doing it with Melinda French the other day. Uh Melinda Melinda French as well. I think um
0: Yeah. they
1: such are... a big name for so long. Yeah, well yeah, it's like what it's you're It's really used to hard to you know. But anyway, both of them have I think Become models, and it's not just accidental that everyone's like, thank God they're doing it. It's like, first of all, they have untold amounts of money, and yet it doesn't really matter. Like, she just gave out two billion dollars the other day. It's like, ultimately, like she is doing, like, okay, all of these organizations, they're doing good stuff.
0: And for a couple different causes, it is more or less that she gave to everybody. Yeah. Um, and, um, that's all very interesting. The, uh, the, well, I mean, the thing for me, like this is called the open door philanthropy podcast, and that that process is a closed door one. We don't, <laughs> we don't know anything about it. Which is how probably I guess most people give. They're just not, not getting the same level of, of absolutely scrutiny.
1: Absolutely, I, I it, mean, I. The,
0: the chat again. I like to go back to the challenge on fundraisers, right? Yes, it's it, a huge challenge. What are fundraisers. They, they basically, if you want to give from, m- wait and hope that it comes is really the only thing you the can. The
1: only thing you can there's do.
0: There's no. People, I've had people in the next few weeks I'm doing report discussions people who have just given feedback too on their proposals and it'll be Mackenzie Scott or somebody else They'll, some of them a few of them will have like a uber famous wealthy donor and they've read an article that gives they have some kind of evidence that suggests that like they care yeah, sure. about the yeah. cause yeah. or whatever and they're like laser that's the solution to their problems How D- Dave can you introduce me to Oprah <laughs> I, I have actually been asked like, it's a question I've been asked no you're you're sitting there wondering if maybe I can the answer is no no of course like of course even like even if I knew her I can't
1: yeah but you know and and look I'm actually literally in that position right now and why would
0: she why like she um, she wants to talk to you about your fundraising thing she will she's Oprah I can't
1: Mackenzie Scott made um, donations to Easter so I'm on the board of Easter Seals DC and uh, Maryland Virginia
0: we read a proposal from Easter Seals, New Orleans once.
1: So she made a lot of gifts to Easter Seals. Because there's a, there's a yeah, there's national a big, office and then and there's franchises. Here in DC, the
0: national's in D.C., I think.
1: No, the national's in Chicago. Oh, We are one of the bigger okay, franchisees. Cool. She See. gave to a bunch of them. Not to ours. She gave to uh, Easter Seals National Capital Region, which is not the same as ours, which is crazy. And so our ceo uh because again because of my history of and the networks that i've worked in which are full of billionaires and they all do kind of know each other um he was like well is there any way we can figure out why we didn't get it or we can get to her and i'm like no, yeah, no. <laughs> like I I, I I i i don't know why we didn't get it and i probably never will but we can't chase shadows like yeah. uh, like in that case in particular, there's." absolutely nothing we can do about it until one of her advisors reaches out and says hey we want to give you some money this is and if that happens it'll be great this is important stuff
0: for fundraisers to hear it is one of the more one of the most common questions i get is how to approach invitation only funders or funders that have said they don't want to be approached (laughs) uh and lots of times like when we're asked that question we don't like the answer is not what they want to hear. Obviously, the answer is not what they want to hear, and so sometimes we just sort of use a lot of words and don't answer the question.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but I, I do like to be pretty quick. What is the what if how what's the best way to approach someone who has said very clearly that they don't want to be approached? It's not approach. You shouldn't approach them.
1: Don't approach right.
0: them. There's no there is no real strategy for this. Continue to be a useful actor in the field. Exactly. Get back to work.
1: Do you do and, and in these <laughs> cases it's do your best and hope they notice you if. For example, like there's lots of. There's no no one
0: person in the world that you need.
1: So there's you can do your work without like if any one person. If you have a website of an organization that's like okay, we're no 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 unsolicited applications fine, but certainly if I know someone in the staff, I'll ask them a question. Mm -hmm. But if I don't know, like there's nothing, I can't do anything about it.
0: And you can you can be prepared. So like. When I, I we've reviewed proposals for. So I once did a, one of these report discussions with a group the day after they got a ten million dollar gift from wow. Mackenzie, and I remember I I wasn't I didn't. So this is I'm about to like we've reviewed their proposal and like given them critical feedback mm-hmm. and I'm going to like talk to them about how to improve, like how to improve their proposals right. They, no they should they want they showed up they, they, they were very interested actually and they thought and we, we pivoted the conversation a little bit in light of yeah what had happened right they, they, they how can they take this feedback Some of the feedback is programmatic yeah, and they can now do something about it because they have, they have money, the money. Yeah. right so it was a very useful conversation and it was very interesting to talk to them. Uh, and I've talked to several other folks who, who, who've got some of the funding and one of the things I, it, 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 the news articles make it seem like these things come completely out of the blue. Uh, and that's probably not true. Almost everybody had at least one conversation or got reached out to by someone who does what you do. Exactly. Uh, and sometimes they reach out and they don't say who the donor uh, who the donor is. They just yeah. have a few questions. So if you're wondering what you can do, you can be prepared for that. Like some some be able to answer questions. Practice answering questions. Have as many meetings as you can with people with smart people who ask questions and practice answering them. Right, and be and have materials that you can share and like be ready. Right, if they call. Right. But you can't it is a like it's a personal heartbreak for me. I see a lot of organizations and their fundraising strategy is we need to reach this one person. Mm-mm. We have kind of a celebrity obsessed culture. Yeah. Uh, I think beyond fundraising, everybody's got the like one celebrity they like to meet. <laughs> right? And it's with it we and we get like really into it. Like, when it comes to billionaires, there's thousands of them. Thousands. So even billionaires alone, you don't like that one billionaire is unaccessible, go there's to one of the many other ones. Others. And again, like I said before one of the things that no one's ever said is oh no i can't afford that i only have 900 million dollars right they're like and in, the in fact depending on what you do someone who only has a million dollars might be able to solve all of your problems
1: more than yeah absolutely
0: i have worked with a lot of people on their fundraising and i don't think the best the people who raised the most money necessarily had the most impact i also don't think that the people who raised the least money had the least impact absolutely i've seen some correlation Obviously, things can be paid for with money. Yeah, but list has been around for seven years and has never had too much of a budget. In that time, I've seen many groups uh, finish successful Series A rounds in the tens of millions seven, and hundreds. go out and go out of business. Exactly. All in the time that I've been here with my nothing budget. And last month, we reviewed our thousandth proposal. That's awesome. Uh, and you've reviewed probably like fifteen of those. Right. just paid in quite a few rounds uh, we have a few reviewers who got over 100 this round which is pretty cool that's amazing uh, and I myself am over 700 Whoa. and Jane Moss my mother over five it's a lot of proposals to read some of them I did. you could every now and then I like I'll see one in the file and I'll be like I've never heard of that mm-hmm. <laughs> but once upon a time I was intimately familiar with it <laughs> uh, anyway thank you very much for evaluating proposals with us. Uh, and for all of the work that you do, I have two more questions for you before we wrap up. Uh, And they're going to be easy ones. Softballs. On a lot of philanthropy podcasts, these are the only questions they ask. (laughs) Uh, But what are you most excited about in philanthropy?
1: I'm really excited about uh, the fact that philanthropy, or at least, again, within the culture of philanthropy, people are also thinking about how to um, engage financial services and regular investors into nonprofits and social enterprises. Um, the advent or the, the, the passing of the law around, um, um, program related investments, I think is something that has been amazing and and mission related investments, something I'm personally, those things I'm very passionate about because we're never going to get where we need to go with just philanthropy. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be possible. There's trillions of dollars sitting there that needs to go somewhere. Why not go into the great work that's being done. Um, but we still see nonprofits as this sort of separate thing when they're intimate and important to our our culture and our society. So they shouldn't be relegated to the sidelines. I also am hoping that we get to a point where philanthropy isn't even as necessary because First of all, uh, uh, non-profits have more sustainable funding streams, either from government or from revenue generation or from investment from the private sector. Or that businesses just actually start doing the right things and uh, not start, but more of them move into doing the right things as core business as opposed to, again, you know, we, we do an employee outing once a year, or we do uh, a check writing thing once a year. It has to be built into the culture in order for it to be sustained and actually create any sort of ga- groundswell. And I think it's happening. It might not happen in the next 10 years, but I think that it is happening. And it's certainly happening a lot more over um, abroad than it is happening here.
0: Uh, indeed. At our symposium, we um, did a session with program officers at foundations, and they were all uh, we, had, we, well, we had two, uh, an Australian foundation and a Canadian foundation. And talking to them and doing the research into it and all of that uh, was very enlightening for me. I actually don't have all that much experience with international foundations. Um, those folks know what they're doing.
1: Yeah.
0: Holy smokes. <laughs> Particularly up in Canada. These are very organized outfits. Yeah. They have a lot of, they've, uh, those two countries have big advantages on yes. us in that the healthcare is covered for all their citizens. Uh, and also dip, they will take action on urgent social issues legislatively. Yes. So, for instance, the amount of philanthropy dollars going to gun control and gun prevention has been increasing quite a bit over the last 10 years. And when I told my Australian friend that, who runs Greater Charitable Foundation, she was, it's strange to see an Australian be so sad for America.
1: No, I, I,
0: yeah. (laughs) But it was so, she couldn't fathom that. Because there, they just saw They that's something the government should solve. Of course. And her foundation gets to focus on like you know funding needful small projects in the community. Um, uh, I do. It is. I do think there will always be people with extra wealth who want to use that extra wealth to help. Yeah. So I don't think philanthropy goes away. I also think currently it's a very large part of the economy, right? And you're right. We get it gets relegated like it's some other conversation. But nonprofit employees are one in five employees. Absolutely. Uh, and it's a. Philanthropy, obviously, they make money. They make earned revenue and other things, but the donations is a is a is a percentage of GDP. It's yeah, three percent of it. That's a lot of money. Uh, and our G- GDP of this country is quite high. <laughs> uh, and it's actually a little bit higher in some in some other countries, and um, probably not going to change here. One of the things that's interesting about America is we like um give basically the same percentage. No matter what's happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes even higher <laughs> disasters.
0: Than... Yeah, it stays right. Everything could be fine, and we just keep giving.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's pretty remarkable watching the, the those trends. Or yes. not. It's just like
0: when it, since I've started being a funder, we've had both the giving pledge and Giving Tuesday come out as new things. Those did not exist when I started in fundraising, and they're and they now pretty well known things. And giving stayed like
1: yeah, because a people flat are like...
0: percentage. Those are well known campaigns for giving more, for encouraging to people to give a higher amount. <laughs> there's also a new one run by Melanie Lundquist, which is like the campaign to accelerate charitable giving. Oh,
1: I've never, I, there's, there's one, there's the, there's the 1%, founders 1%. There's a few iterations of Founders them.
0: Pledge. Founders I remember Pledge, talking sorry. To them. I remember talking to them, yeah. There's one, something with 1% in there. And, and there, when I got to the end of that conversation, it was just like, and I was like, how do you, but how do you make, they're like, they just said donor advised fund. If you look at all these things, it's like how they make money is like, and we've set up a donor advised fund, right? The, um, thing,
1: the thing about like the all of these things, at least
0: the giving pledge isn't a fund that they're managing. No, that would be, but that would be very untoward. I the, think
1: the, the parameters around the giving pledge are so loose, right? So it's most like,
0: most of them I've seen their wealth increase by over hundred percent. The average is le- like one hundred and seventeen percent at least. I have numbers somewhere. I'm planning on writing something up about but, it. But
1: but the fact Cause, is, because
0: actually Bezos just uh, said he was going to sign it, and like that does. at now we should know that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> they don't give.
1: They still aren't because they're like
0: they don't do it. They sign the pledge and then don't do it. Actually, what Melanie Lunk was, she has signed it, but she was like signing it didn't make me like no because didn't there's change no, anything. There's
1: nothing. You're not held accountable to giving or within a particular time frame. It's not saying you're going to give half of your wealth in the next ten years, right? Or in the next twenty, or even like. Create no. the that if you, do that.
0: If you die and don't do it, then they can't. Then you're what dead. And they, they, can't, think? they can't. There's nothing to do about it.
1: And that's and that's the problem with the giving pledge is that there's no account. It's it's a nice thing to say you're going to do, but if you're but it's not actionable.
0: We've made it very easy for folks, for billionaires and donors, to get great press, uh, and uh, just hardly any for criticism. doing
1: the least. <laughs>
0: doing very little. Little. I mean, there was one time I forget which gift. Oh, yeah, it was doing. John Paulson gave 400 million to Harvard. Ugh. Malcolm Gladwell created a Twitter account. Like because of because of that, and like I think it's possibly just, it's been a while since I checked. Like this might be the only tweet he ever tweeted, and it was just how do I give back without giving back? <laughs> it re- and I uh Bezos gave 100 million dollars to Dolly Parton. Yeah, I lo- I mean I, I love I love
1: her. I love Dolly Parton. Like
0: Martin. that's and I honestly it's
1: not even, a- even arounding it.
0: She'll do a good job with it or whatever. But like what it's 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 a I I don't like that bad things are being said about me. I want to solve it with this. Who's popular? He probably had somebody run the numbers on, like, comparing his polling to <laughs> Dolly's, right? And she probably has the, like, best favorables with the people who don't like him. And so that's why they chose... Like, this is entirely about... Not entirely. Thing, and, and
1: no, but he... The, the thing that's, he's, again, remarkable... He's probably, if
0: good gets done, he's not bothered by that. But, like, I don't... I really don't believe that's why that happened.
1: And I don't... I actually don't necessarily care if they care about doing good or or good press because someone, hopefully someone is advising them like these are some great ideas or organizations, just give more to them. Like Dolly is amazing. And I've been a beneficiary because my son got books every month for five years. It's freaking cool. awesome. You, there are millions of Dolly's. If you gave out, you would still have so much money. Like that's uh, to me again, it's the, it's the reluctance to just act that I, that I find frustrating and that I ultimately still don't understand. There's great proven stuff. Some of it's very confusing. Just fund
0: it. And again, I can't afford that. I only have $900 million. Should By the make... way, that
1: has happened to me. <laughs> Where I had billions. Someone said that, a version Not of that Not a version of that. <laughs> because there were billionaires that went from $4 billion to $3 billion, they were like, we're really pulling back. I'm like this 100,000. some of that makes just no comes difference. some of that
0: just comes to them from the it honestly a lot of this comes back to the fact that billion sounds like million and we actually do not have brains capable of, of, compreh- of comprehending yeah. these numbers yeah, they're too and high. we talk we say that out loud all the time like we know the dif- 3 billion, and 4 billion like we know the difference between those two things and you don't if i showed you a pile of 3 billion marbles and a pile of 4 billion marbles it would look like two huge piles of marbles <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, it's an absurd amount of money. Uh, so, uh, thank you very much. We've had, uh, as usual on the podcast, a nice long chat about philanthropy. It's been a pleasure. Checkout at this hotel is in 23 minutes. Oh. So we need to wrap up. Okay. As you can see, I'm, I'm packed up and ready to go. Made my own bed. <laughs> <laughs> I did my best. Yes. And uh, anyway, so uh, as a final thing, uh, and our, our, as you know, or as you may know, our most dedicated listeners do listen to the very end. Of the really? I have some analytics, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they're just leaving it on while they do other things, but we get a lot of folks come to the end. Uh, and uh, so is there anything you'd like to plug? Is there a website for your current work or anything you want, you're want you doing now that you want to tell them about?
1: I would plug... Um, uh, well, first of all, I'm Mally Lock, Inherent Foundation. I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I actually do accept a lot of... Uh, uh, requests and read the emails because I think that that's my it's part of my job to be responsive um, but if you are interested in giving just give like it's not that hard and I know that you, especially when you're when you have less money people feel like okay they have less money to give that's okay the, the most generous people in our world are some of the poorest people in our mm-hmm. world and you okay. make a difference if you can't give money do something else read a book read about policies be actively engaged, um, and if you want a charity, Easter Seals DCMDVa, we could always use unrestricted dollars.
0: And there's probably an Easter Seals chapter in their local area. Absolutely, I know you're, you're, you have a duty of care and a duty of loyalty, mm-hmm. uh, and I admire you, inviting... <laughs> Uh and uh, you know, thanks for all the great work. Also, right, you uh, for evaluating proposals with us. Uh, people are considering spending, uh, submitting a proposal here. You might be one of the evaluators they hear from. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh, Thank you, everybody at home, for listening. Good luck with your fundraising and with your grant-making. Okay, thank you. Oh, and thank you to David Jaffe for editing the episode.
1: Thank you for having me.